1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but precious by God, but but chosen by God and precious. Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. The first chapter of Peter has contained the broad themes of grace and salvation. Remember what the Bible says, we are to live in hope. We are to live in holiness in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. We are to live in harmony, and that's been the theme since uh, verse 22 of chapter 1, all the way through the first 10 verses of chapter 2. In the second chapter, we have moved from the theme of salvation to the theme of submission. And Peter will continue with the discussion of our heavenly privileges from chapter 1 through verse 10 and our earthly responsibilities in verses 11 through 17 of chapter 2. Now remember what we've already seen. We are to renounce the world and abandon deceit and hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, remember in the opening part of chapter 2, it says, therefore laying aside... All malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. But when you look at verse 4, it says, coming to him. Once you've taken off your filthy garment, it's important that you put on the new garment. Last week we talked about new babies. When you change the baby's diaper... It's important that you put on a clean diaper. What mother or father in their right mind leaves the baby in the dirty diaper? We take off the old. We put on the new. And remember, we are to crave the unadulterated pure milk of God's word in verses 2 through 3. Peter includes... Uh, the theme of relationships. We're Christians, and so he moves into that theme of relationship and that we as Christians are living stones, he says in verse 5. We are royal priests, he says in verse 5. And later, Peter will include that we are a chosen people in verses 9 and 10 and strangers on the earth in verse 11. In order to understand our privilege and in order to understand our position, we have to understand who we are in Christ, but also we have to understand who Christ is. He's our living foundation, it says at the opening of verse 4. Precious for the believer, but guess what? 
a stumbling block for the unbeliever. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So Peter is going to switch the metaphor that we've been looking at. We're going to move from babies to buildings. Peter began the section with the idea that we are children in God's family. And now he's going to continue with the idea that we are living stones in God's temple. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament covenant, God dwelt among his people in a physical temple. We learn about that in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. God's presence, you'll remember, in the Old Testament was, was basically represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the Ark was placed in a physical temple. And the physical temple began life as a tabernacle, but it continued when Solomon built a temple of Jerusalem stone. Now, for those of you who have been to Israel with me, we know that there's a gigantic limestone deposit and they will quarry gigantic blocks from the Jerusalem limestone in order to build the temple. In the new covenant, God doesn't dwell in a temple or in a localized place. In other words, the presence of God isn't so much in a building as it is in a, in a group of believers. I know that for some of you, when you first came to Calvary and you go, this is a supermarket. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a supermarket. But it's not anymore. We got it out. I tried to remove all of the remnants of a supermarket, but there are still people who will come in and go, hey, that's where the deli was. Hey, that's where the checkout stand was. Hey, this is the place where I used to go down the aisle and my, my, my cart would suddenly disappear on me. Well, we've, we've, we've worked hard to, to turn it into something a little bit more comfortable for us. You have to understand something. God dwells in the hearts of the people who are truly born again by the Holy Spirit. We literally don't even become a church until you're all here. Until we're all gathered together. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We're the living stones that make up that building. And so again, look what it says in verse 4. Coming to him, remember, leaving behind these things, coming to him as to a living stone, <clears throat> rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. In verse 4, Peter begins with a description of the living stone. As a matter of fact, the word translated living comes from a Greek word, zoe. Some of you are going to be familiar with these words by now. Bios is a word that often represented animal life. We get the word biology from that. Zoos was life in and of itself or life in all of its forms. It was an active life. Zoe was a type of life that was meant to mean animated life, which is the opposite of death. And so when Peter purposely uses the two terms together, a living stone, it creates a kind of a paradox. By the way, have you ever seen a living stone? 
Not really. I mean, you might look at a gem or you might look at a diamond. You might look at some beautiful rocks, but clearly they're not alive. Is there literally such a thing as a living stone? Not that I know of. Now, I do remember a Star Trek episode (laughs) where the fearless crew of the Enterprise, remember they're traveling through space and they come upon carbon-based life forms, but then they come upon what was called a silicon-based form of life and they called it the Horda. And apparently this species uh, was the last of its kind and it it was guarding a brood of bricks. And in one scene, Captain Kirk, uh, you know, the Horda is sick and Kirk orders McCoy to heal it. And Bones says, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. (laughs) Now, what does this have to do with our text? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Just the reality that there is no such thing as living stones. And so what is Peter doing? He's drawing a spiritual Metaphor. The word for stone is lithos, and it's the same word that translates the tablets when Paul, when the Lord writes on the tablets of stone. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, where it talks about writing the commandments of God on tablets of stone. So people will often ask me the question, they'll go, well, wait a minute. Who wrote this book? By the way, who wrote the book? Peter. People will sometimes ask me, well, is Peter the stone? Is Peter the rock on which Jesus chose to build his church? Well, in one sense, the answer is no. And in what sense is that? Peter writes about it here in verse 4. Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the one who's been chosen by God and precious. But did Jesus say something interesting to Peter? Well, the answer is yes. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, you'll remember it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You'll remember when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, whom do men say that I am? The disciples offered all kinds of different responses. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist come back to life. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're you're a true prophet of God. And remember, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to Peter. But his father in heaven. The revelation of the true identity of Jesus. His mission. His death. His resurrection. It is the person of Jesus. The life of Jesus. The death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus that provides the basis of the church. Imagine we had the ability to go back in time. And we could interview Peter. Well, obviously, just like the Horda in Star Trek, we don't have the ability to do that. But we have the ability to open up our Bible and read for ourselves what Peter himself says about who the true stone is. It's found in verse 4, coming to him, Jesus, as the living stone. Imagine you could talk to Peter and you asked him the question, hey, are you the rock on which the church is built? 
What do you think Peter would say? Peter would say in verse 4, no, Jesus is the rock. Well, why do you call him the living stone? And Peter's answer might include the fact we call him the living stone because Jesus Christ rose from the dead in power. Jesus rose from the dead in permanence. Jesus rose from the dead in victory. There's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus. There's only one temple, one spiritual tabernacle, one church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the one who brings the building together. And we are the living stones bound to Jesus. And this is the metaphor. We collectively are bound to Jesus. Now think carefully because we are bound to Jesus we're also bound to one another that's the picture that he's trying to paint for us so whether we agree or not even though you might be confused or perhaps even deceived the reality is we belong to Jesus and because we belong to Jesus we belong to each other Peter says that Jesus is the living stone. And listen carefully. Peter says, Jesus is the living stone that's been chosen by God, but rejected by men. Clearly, Peter is one of the foundation stones. But remember what Peter is, just like the rest of the apostles. Jesus quarried Peter out of the matrix of sin and selfishness and wickedness. Peter would be the first to admit that when he walked and talked with Jesus, when he was discipled by Jesus, when he served Jesus, when he witnessed the miracles of Jesus, that the response that Peter gave when Jesus performed a miracle on the Sea of Galilee, Peter said, depart from me because I'm a sinner. Do you genuinely believe that God would place your salvation on something as risky as Peter? But your salvation is based on the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Peter, if you had the opportunity to interview him, would want to let you know what Jesus did for Peter, not what Peter can do for you. When Simon met Jesus... He was more like shifting sand than a firm foundation. And when Jesus quarried him from the pit of sin and cut him and polished him and placed him in the temple of the living God, the point that Peter is making is he can cut you and he can polish you and he can place you in a position of service and suitability to him. That's the point. John Phillips tells the story when David Livingston, the greatest of all missionaries, died alone in the heart of Africa, his native porters found him kneeling beside his bed and they cut out his heart and they buried it in his beloved Africa. Then they took his body and they handed it over to the British authorities and then it was transported back to England and it was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey amid the mourning nation and there was a brass plate in the floor that marks the spot and a text tells the tale, other sheep have I which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Such was his 
noble epitaph. However, he had another one. One of Britain's periodicals said it best. Across the front page and banner headlines, it carried the legend, Granite may crumble, but this is Livingston. Granite may crumble, but this is living stone. His name becomes a metaphor for friendship, relationship, identification with Jesus. Peter goes from a description of the living stone to the explanation of why human beings discard the living stone. When he says coming to him as to a living stone, look what it says, rejected indeed by men. The word rejected is a compound word. It's apo, dokimazo. This word literally means to reject as the result of disapproval. As a matter of fact, we might say failed to pass inspection. Typically when something is fabricated and constructed, it has a quality assurance. And in the quality assurance process, you make sure that whatever it is, it passes inspection. And so the religious leaders saw Jesus. They inspected Jesus. They saw Jesus, they inspected Jesus, and they disapproved of him. And why did the religious leaders reject him? They rejected him because he failed their man-made standards of what constitutes a viable Messiah. Remember why the religious leaders rejected Jesus? They rejected Jesus because Jesus hung out with sinners. We want a Messiah who doesn't hang out with sinners and tax collectors. Why else did they reject him? Hey, they rejected him because... Not of his miracles, but because they believed that he did those miracles under the power of demonic deception. Even the religious leaders didn't dispute the reality of the supernatural circumstances of Jesus' life. They accused him of performing miracles through the power of Satan. The religious leaders wanted liberation from the tyranny of Rome. Jesus offered them liberation from sin. But guess what they thought? We're fine. We have our, a religion. We're happy with our religion. We're happy being followers of Abraham. We're happy to have received the, the Mosaic law. We're happy because we believe that the religious rituals that we embrace create for us a mechanism whereby we will be acceptable to God. And Jesus said, the only way that you're going to possibly be acceptable to God is through me. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. No wonder Jesus said, I came down from heaven. The Father has sent me and the Father has sent me with a message of hope. And the message of hope is, guess what? You can experience forgiveness and reconciliation to God through me. And they asked the question, how could you possibly do such a thing? And Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Remember Jesus said, this person who you claim to be your God, he's my father. And when Jesus said that, they 
picked up stones in order to put him to death. And Jesus said, for which good work are you putting me to death? And they said, it's not for any good work that we're putting you to death. We're putting you to death because you, being a man, make God out to be your father. They rejected him. Because he claimed to come from God with a message of God in order to liberate them and reconcile them to God. And they rejected him. And people still reject him. They reject his message. They reject him. People want religion, but they don't want a relationship with God through Christ. And so Peter moves from the stone described to the stone discarded to the stone displayed in all of its glory. So Peter says, chosen of God and precious. Peter's already described the sacrifice of Jesus as precious, pointing to the true value and worth of Jesus. And once again, John Phillips gives this illustration. He tells the story, one of the great stories in all of art history. And it concerned the sculptor Michelangelo. He came across a discarded piece of marble. It had been ruined by some other sculptor and it still bore the marks of that person's incompetence. And there was this gigantic piece of marble, rejected, forlorn, ruined, unwanted. And Michelangelo looked it over. And as he's looking it over, he goes, Hey, I I see someone in there. Who is that in there? I can see, I can see David. And he took this great big chunk of marble and he created one of the great masterpieces of art in all of human history. You've heard the expression, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's right. Michelangelo saw a piece of rock ruined and he transformed it into something incredible. The world sees Jesus. The world sees Jesus and they quote Isaiah 53 too. There is no beauty in him that we should desire him. There's nothing about Jesus that we want. There's nothing about Jesus that we would desire. Jesus, a great man though he is, is just a man among many men. There's nothing special about Jesus that we we would desire him. God sees Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. Do you remember when Jesus was getting ready to be baptized by John the Baptist? The heavens opened and a voice spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The father declares the son precious, chosen, infinite, incomprehensible in value. What's more important than Jesus? What's more valuable than Jesus? What's more precious than Jesus? And so in verse 5, Peter continues, he says, you also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now both Peter and Paul in the New Testament make reference to the unity 
of the body of Christ. Paul will often use the illustration of living tissue in a body. Peter, a temple, stones. Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul draws up a blueprint for the church and the plan for building that building for reaching that goal. Paul writes that God designed the church to function in a way that the needs of the individual members of the church could be met within the context of the church by the church. That we join together, knit together, create a mechanism of mutual support and mutual love. You probably wonder, what does it matter if I go to church? What does it matter if I show up or if I don't show up? If I go, I go. And if I don't, I don't. And if I participate, I participate. But if I don't participate, who cares? Well, guess what? God cares. Why? Because you have been saved and you have been gifted and you have been transformed. You are a building block in a body. You are a building block in a building. You are a functioning portion of a real body, if you will. And so Peter describes a new likeness and a new priesthood and a new priority. And what is that new likeness? Look what it says again in verse 5. You also as living stones. Now remember what I said earlier. Is there such a thing as a living stone? Only metaphorically. In what way is Jesus a living stone? He's risen from the dead, never to die ever again. In what way are you a living stone? You've been bought. Remember, not with something as, as, as insignificant as gold or silver. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. You've been purchased. You have been purchased and you've been made alive. This is what the New Testament means when it says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, God has made alive through the person of Jesus Christ. You were dead. Dead as a rock. Dead as a rock. When I was younger, there was a craze that swept the nation. It was called pet rocks. I'll be honest with you. They make pretty good pets. And the reason why they make pretty good pets is because you don't have to feed them. And you never have to clean up after them. You don't have to water them. And you don't even have to take them for, for walks. And you know what? They're not demanding. You can look at a rock and you can say the most wicked and evil things that it never is offended. Why? Because it's not really alive. And you know what? How can you tell if you're really alive in Christ? Remember, you're going to want 
spiritual things. You're going to long for spiritual things and you're going to participate in spiritual things. We as believers become like our Lord. We are living stones. And with that new likeness, with the new likeness comes a new location. We are being built up a spiritual house. You were never meant to be by yourself. You were meant to participate as a body. Now we understand what Jesus had in mind when he said, you are Peter, a pebble, and upon this rock, a very large stone, the declaration of Peter, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, I will build my church. Peter has the church universal on his mind. The church, the spiritual church being built up by the several stones that make up all of the believers in all of the church age. Remember when you go back all the way to the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's writing to four different provinces, but now his address is going beyond Asia Minor to every believer in every age, in every generation. The new likeness, the new location is going to also bring with it a new lineage. And the new lineage, of course, is a holy priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. This is very, very interesting. And the reason why it's so interesting is because in the Old Testament, the priesthood was severely restricted by the command of God given by Moses. As a matter of fact, only the house of Levi and only a specific portion in the house of Levi could function as priests in the Old Testament economy. And remember what the function of the priest was. The function of the priest fell to the family of Aaron. No one else could be a priest. No matter how gifted you were, no matter how rich you were, no matter how famous you were, great kings like David and Solomon, they could not be priests. As a matter of fact, when Hezekiah intruded into the office of the priest, he was stricken with leprosy. But with the death of Jesus and with the tearing away of the temple veil, with the resurrection of Jesus... Old Testament Judaism with its system of sacrifice and priests is done away with forever. An elaborate religious system with robed priests, endless ritual is going to give away to something brand new. And by the way, those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, when a priest representing the people to God offered a sacrifice, what kind of a sacrifice did they offer? Animals, the bloods of bulls and goats and doves, they would slaughter animals. They would kill animals in an endless flood of sacrifice. But guess what? With Jesus, we have access to God all the time. Jesus is our priest, Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is a priest forever. In Hebrews 7, 17, it says, after the order of Melchizedek, in what way? He didn't belong to uh, the tribe of, of Levi. He wasn't a priest. He didn't, Jesus didn't fit the requirements according to the Old Testament economy to be a priest. But now every blood-bought believer functions as priests on the earth. Why? 
because the reality and the substance has replaced the type and the shadow. The sacrifice of Jesus, the cross of Calvary, renders the entire Old Testament system null and void. Jesus becomes the type and the picture and the fulfillment of all of the religious ritual that was represented in the past. And now you become a kingdom of priests, men and women, ministering to Jesus and ministering to God through Jesus. We offer the spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise. We proclaim the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's That new likeness and that new priesthood leads to a new priority. And that's what that means when he says, you also as living stones being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Look what it says. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. Do you kill goats and bulls and doves? No. And look what it says. It doesn't say a physical sacrifice. It says a spiritual sacrifice. And what is your spiritual sacrifice? Remember what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Your spiritual sacrifice is the sacrifice of worship and praise. Now we all of a sudden understand again when Jesus says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How do you worship God in spirit and in truth? Do you see him with your eyes? Do you touch him with with, with your hands? No. Our worship isn't just simply a, a physical participation whereby worship becomes something where, you know, I felt, I felt kind of a, I felt something, I felt heebie-jeebies up my back. There was a quiver in my liver. My palms started to sweat. No. Worship isn't a physical exercise confirmed by your body. It's a spiritual exercise manifested in your soul and in your spirit. We praise the Lord. We worship the Lord, our ministry then also is an extension of the Lord's ministry. Now, now I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is the living stone and we, like him, become living stones. Was the ministry of Jesus acceptable to God? What do you suppose the answer is? That's exactly right. Yes, the ministry of Jesus was acceptable to God. And when you embrace the ministry of Jesus, your ministry is acceptable to God. As a matter of fact, when it says in verse 5, when you offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, the word acceptable is very strong. It's very vivid in the original language. It's eupros, dektos. It means very favorably. We might even say accepted in the strongest possible terms. Let me give you an example. 
you go to Macaroni Grill. And you get the all you can get you get the grilled spendini. And they bring it out and it's filled with smoked grilled peppers. The aroma is absolutely breathtaking and captivating. And the manager sees you and says, hey, I don't mean to be offensive or anything, but would you allow me to pay your bill? And you say, that would be acceptable. (laughs) That's this meaning of this word. It's I accept this in the strongest possible terms. Allowed, it means highly favored in the strongest terms. And so your praise, your ministry, your circumstances, instead of yielding your bodies to sin, you get to yield your bodies to God. You offer spiritual sacrifices of praise and worship. Hebrews chapter 13 describes two more types of acceptable sacrifice, doing good and sharing. Hey, is it okay if I do something nice for you? Of course it is. Doing good and sharing becomes a part of your reasonable spiritual sacrifice. So look at verse 6. It says, therefore it is also contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter reminds the suffering saints that his encouragement is based on the Bible, the scripture. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. In Isaiah chapter 28, 16, it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. In other words, he's quoting in the scripture. And when he's quoting the scripture, he's saying, Isaiah has already predicted that Jesus would be the foundation of a new life, a new love, a new hope, a new way. Do you know when Isaiah wrote that? I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone. You know when he wrote this song? He wrote it when the northern kingdom was on the verge of collapse. It was going to get ready to be absolutely overrun and overwhelmed by the Assyrian armies. God was going to use the Assyrian army like a rod to punish the persistent apostasy, the unrepentant idolatry, the irreversible moral decay that was taking place in the country. Isaiah writes this when the city and the nation is on the verge of collapse. Why is that important? Do you remember the context? The people are hurt and they're in pain and they're they're in persecution. They have been displaced. They have been isolated. They have been marginalized. Some of them have been tortured. Others have been killed. And Peter's encouraging them that God has laid a foundation for their lives forever. That's the point. When Isaiah wrote those words, the people's world was getting ready to collapse. And when Peter writes 
and redefines those words and repeats those words, he's talking to a group of people whose world is about to collapse. And that's why he says in verse 7, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. Do you know what Peter is doing? He's not only quoting Psalm 118 verse 22 and Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14. He's remembering, he's remembering, he's remembering the words of Jesus himself. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 21 verse 44? And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You see the chief cornerstone which is creating a living temple as access to God has also become the rock of offense. Now the chief cornerstone, by the way, is the anchor stone. It's the stone which all the lines and measurements are made like the capstone of a pyramid. The cornerstone is the keystone of the building and the cornerstone is not only the keystone of the building, it becomes a type and a picture of, of the building as well. And so Peter says in verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. Here, the word translated stone is different from the other word in the text. It's Petra, as in Matthew 16, 18. It's not lithos. This is a word that indicates a ledge rising up out of the ground. This is, let me just try and paint a picture for you. Have you ever seen the flat irons in Boulder? You see like a giant rock ledge that juts out of the very face of the mountain. That's what this means. It's a gigantic ledge and you can't miss it. The word offense, by the way, is scandalon, which suggests more than an inconvenient obstacle. It was a trap, or to set a trap, or to bait a trap. And in the New Testament, it was a word that was often used to describe anything that arouses prejudice, and so becomes a hindrance, or, or an obstacle that was meant to throw someone off course, or cause them to fall by the wayside. But it can sometimes be used in, in, a, in a good context. In other words, where the object itself is good in and of itself. By the way, our own word scandal is borrowed from that word. Jesus scandalized the Jews. In what way? Remember? Jesus doesn't fit neatly into the messianic perception. Wait a minute. Jesus, you're a wine-bibber. You're a friend of sinners. Jesus rejected their man-made rules and regulations. Jesus drove the religious leaders over the edge. And clearly, when he claims to be God, this sends them so far over the edge that they decide that they're going to kill him. Now, let me give you an illustration. The claim is offensive. Imagine you're walking in the back hills, and you go into a gully that no one has traveled in maybe for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as you're walking, you look up and you trip over something and you fall flat on your face into the dirt and you look down and there's a 200-pound nugget of gold. Would you kick it again and you go, stupid stone? Or would you go, hoo hoo 
hundred pound gold nugget. You see, Jesus is a precious, precious, precious thing. But rather than see him for what he is, they reject him. Most of us are familiar with the term stumble. It means to trip over something. And here Peter uses the expression as an obstacle, something that you would cut your foot on. Peter adds being disobedient to the word. That's one of Jesus' exalted titles, by the way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became the declaration of all that God had revealed. Here's a question for you. Were the, did the Jews have a history of hearing and obeying the word of God? Or of hearing and disobeying the word of God? For the most part, it was hearing and disobeying the word of God. And that's the point. If you've read the Bible and you believe the Bible's record of the willingness of the Jewish people to believe and obey the Bible, then you're going to discover that the ongoing revelation of God, God sends prophets to the Jewish people and he kills them. The Jewish people kill them. Remember Stephen when he was almost on the, in, at the end of his life, they were getting ready to, 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 to stone him. And, and Stephen had said to them earlier, which of the prophets didn't you kill or dishonor? And that was the end of his life. Many more prophets were killed than left alive for telling the people the truth. The Jews aren't alone in their rejection of Jesus. Think of the countless people who hear the gospel and reject it. You hear the gospel. Some of you have heard it over and over again. And you reject Jesus. Because you want your boyfriend, you want your husband, you want your girlfriend, you want your wife, you want your job, you want this, you want that. You believe that by embracing Christ, it, it, it's a stumble. You stumble over the fact that he claims to be God. You stumble over the fact of his exclusivity. You stumble over the fact that, that it can't be that simple. People still stumble. The world stumbles over Jesus and the cross. Just this last week, one of the chaplains of, of a state legislature was fired from his job because he prayed a prayer and he said, in Jesus' name. You can't say that. Why? It might offend people. Isn't that great? What? You want to offend people? Of course I don't want to offend people. But if the truth is offensive, then you put me in a very difficult position. I have to choose between offending you or lying to you. And I have to weigh and ask myself this question. What's more reasonable? To offend you or to lie about what God has said? By the way, it's a dangerous thing to reject God's word. It's a dangerous thing to reject the testimony of God in the person of Christ. No wonder it says, and a stone of stumbling. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. You know, I read an illustration of a man in Michigan. He was a contractor. He was building a house and he was 
building the first floor and everything went smoothly, but when they came to the second floor, nothing seemed to fit. None of the materials fit properly. And then they discovered something pretty dramatic. The construction crew on the first floor was operating from an entirely different set of blueprints than the people on the second floor. And if you're operating from two sets of blueprints, the chances are you're going to build two separate things. We as Christians sometimes hinder God's plan for the building because we're going from a separate set of blueprints. In the blueprints that Peter has outlined, a blueprint of hope, a blueprint of holiness, a blueprint of harmony, a blueprint of putting off certain things and then putting on other things and then walking in the newness of life. As a matter of fact, the things that are constructed in this new building, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 and verse 15, it says, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's unity. And become mature. That's maturity. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's Christ-likeness. Speaking the truth in love will grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. The church of Jesus is marked by unity and maturity and Christ-likeness because you speak the truth in love. That's balance. And now all of a sudden, we have to ask and answer the question, where does the blueprint come from? It's the revelation that's been given by God in Christ. It's the revelation that's been given by God in Christ. Unity. Maturity. Christ-likeness. Balance. That's the ingredients that make up the living stones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the word of God and the son of God. Lord, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Chosen, precious, elect. Accepted by some. Rejected by most. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to hearts. Lord, I pray that people would consider the claims of Jesus. Who made Jesus to be both Lord and Savior? Why, it was God the Father. Predicted in the past. Fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Authenticated by his real resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who's living a life of emptiness and loneliness. Disconnected dead, dead as a rock. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would become a living stone animated by truth and love, animated by forgiveness and hope, animated from the life that brought Jesus back from the dead. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.